2006, November 6th. Today is the first lecture of Unit Number 6 on the Solar System, Lecture 31, The Family of the Sun, which will begin in just a moment. So, homework number four is being handed around with bubble sheets. It's due a week from today on Monday. It's five questions. The general theme is the solar system, much along the lines of what we did um, a little bit different than last week. And it also has uh, just a question about atomic energy levels, just to give you something to work on there. So there's straight, I think, relatively straightforward exercise. You'll see the point of the homework questions, again, is sort of applications in the solar system, quantitative questions. Okay. So I'm going to start with a question for you, since we're starting a new unit today on the solar system. And I realize this is a, just, just sort of interesting in a, in a show of hands and opinion. And that is, how many of you think Pluto is a planet? How many of you think Pluto is a planet? As opposed to a dwarf planet, which is the new... Re how many of you think Pluto is a dwarf planet? Okay, so it's... Some of you are non-committal, some of you aren't paying attention. Uh, Little busy handing out the homework there. A few people still think Pluto's a planet, and some people have decided to accept, yeah, what the heck, the uh, IAU's definition of a dwarf planet. Well, with today's lecture, I'm going to give an overview of what the solar system's contents are, and at least start in on the question of, is Pluto a planet or not, and why? And I think today I'll, I'll maybe convince a few people we'll, we'll actually save that discussion a bit for a little while from now as we get to the outer solar system. So today's key idea is we're going to do a quick overview of the solar system. This is going to be one of those graphics-heavy uh, lectures because we're going to lay the, the groundwork, if you will, or the space work for everything that's going to come over the next few weeks for the rest of the class on the solar system. So we want to start by just simply the key ideas or to review what the solar system's contents are. The solar system is primarily the sun, followed by terrestrial planets, Jovian planets, dwarf planets, giant moons, trans-Neptunian objects, and then the sort of the last category, which is all the leftover stuff, asteroids, comets, and meteoroids. And we'll see where they all fit together in different contexts. This is approximately the order, but not quite, that we'll be going through them through the next few weeks. A couple of basic facts to come away with today is that all the planets, meaning the terrestrial and Jovian planets, all lie in nearly the same plane, and they all share in their orbits the same general sense of direction of the orbit. And this is going to be important to us, especially when we talk about this in more detail tomorrow. This is an important clue as to the formation of the solar system. It's a dynamical remembrance, if you will, of the original configuration of the raw materials that surrounded the proto-sun. So we're going to be seeking in the solar system itself clues to its origin, because we can't, of course, go back 4.6 billion years in time to actually watch the solar system form. Now, it turns out that this is actually a very good time to be studying the solar system. A lot of my colleagues think the solar system is kind of boring. Uh, you'll notice there are two classes, 161 and 162. 162 is stars, galaxies, and the universe. The highest demand among our faculty is to teach 162 instead of 161, because 162 is closer to what all of us do our research on. And some people never teach 161 because they don't like the solar system. I don't know why, but they don't. Oh, if I want to know solar system, one person said, I'd be a geologist. Well, that's a bad attitude, not the least of which is we are right now in, in absolutely the golden age of exploration of the solar system. We have learned more in the last few decades than we've learned in thousands of years of looking at the sky. In particular, we've sent robotic spacecraft and even astronauts to many places within our solar system. For example, we've landed men on the moon. 
there have been 12 human beings who have walked on the surface of our nearest celestial neighbor and brought back about 380 kilos worth of rocks. We've also used robots as surrogates. Sending people is expensive. You've got to carry air and water and radiation shielding with you. It's a lot cheaper to build a tough robot, if you will, and just send it out because it doesn't need to breathe for 20 years in deep space. We've sent landers to the moon, Venus, Mars, Titan, the giant atmosphere-bearing moon of Saturn, and even an asteroid, the asteroid 433 Eros, have all been landed on by human-built spacecraft and returned a tremendous wealth of data. We've returned, as I said before, about 380 kilos of rocks from the moon, most from Apollo, but a few of those kilos have come through the Soviet space program through robotic spacecraft. We've actually dropped probes into the atmospheres of three of the major planets, Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. In fact, we put landers on these, so often that's one and the same. Jupiter, of course, you don't have land to land on, but we've dumped at least two spacecraft into the atmosphere, one of them instrumented to return information about the giant atmosphere of the planet Jupiter. We've flown spacecraft by all of the eight planets. Every single planet has been visited by spacecraft, some in greater or lesser degrees of detail, as we'll see as we go through the class. We've mapped the surfaces of two of those planets, which are perpetually shrouded in clouds, using a combination of infrared and radar, microwave radar mapping, especially the planet Venus, as we're going to see on Wednesday. Wednesday? No, Thursday. And we've also flown past in spacecraft, not only asteroids, but comets as well. And we didn't exactly put a lander on a comet, but we did bash an impactor into one comet and watch the material that came off from this artificial meteor strike. So we've done a tremendous a lot, and there's still a great deal more to happen. As we talk about each of the different areas of the solar system, one of the things I'll introduce at that point are the current ongoing or planned space missions to visit these worlds. We've learned a tremendous amount, and there's so much more we have to learn. They're just a sort of a quick picture gallery of some of these wonderful spacecraft. Uh, Voyagers 1 and 2, which have probably done most of the exploration of the outer solar system, have flown by all of the Jovian planets combined. Of course, the Apollo 11 through 17 missions, which landed astronauts on the moon. The Magellan-Venus radar mapper, which mapped the entire planet through its shroud of, of, of cloud. Cassini and Huygens. Cassini is currently in orbit around the planet Saturn and returning just stunning pictures. Made a number of key discoveries that will be the subject of, of a series of, of one of the lectures um, coming up. And it also dropped a probe into the atmosphere of the moon Titan and landed on the surface of that rather wacky place. There's a spacecraft currently en route to the planet Mercury. We've only actually imaged half of the planet Mercury. We'll see why that is on Wednesday. There's a spacecraft called Messenger, which is currently on the way, which will eventually do a couple of flybys and then drop into orbit around the planet. And finally, of course, the real heroes right now of planetary exploration, the Mars Exploration Rovers, which have far, far exceeded their design lifetime and have been traveling all over these two planes around the equatorial regions of Mars on opposite sides of the planet. And have actually returned the first hard evidence that there were, in fact, hydrated minerals on Mars, which shows minerals that formed in the presence of liquid water sometime in Mars's past. And we'll say more about that next week. So we're today, however, our topic is the big picture. We're not going to dwell on too many details. We want to know about the family of the sun. The sun, of course, is the center of the solar system. It's a middle-sized star. And surrounding it is a retinue of other stuff. In the inner, moving from the inside to the outside, we have the terrestrial planets. These are the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Following that are the gas giant planets, the biggest planets in the solar system. 
Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And these two together make up the eight planets that surround the sun. Then we have the dwarf planets. These are the rocky and icy bodies. These have recently been defined by the IAU. There are currently three dwarf planets and a number of candidates. The three bona fide dwarf planets are Pluto, a former planet, Eris, and Ceres. Pluto and Eris are icy bodies of the outer solar system. Ceres is the largest of the asteroids in the region between Mars and Jupiter. And then we end up with a group of objects which the IAU has now decided to give a proper designation as small solar system bodies. And these are going to be a mixture of all the leftover junk in the solar system. Each of these classes probably only constitutes combined a percent or less of the mass of the Earth. It's really kind of the leftover construction debris from the assembly of the solar system. There are two basic groups of these. The icy small solar system bodies, which live in the outer solar system beyond Neptune. This will include things like the Kuiper Belt objects and comets. And then there are going to be the small rocky bits, which are going to be found in the inner solar system, primarily the smaller asteroids and the meteoroids, the small bits of rock and grit that occasionally actually streak through the atmosphere and can sometimes be large enough to survive the passage through our atmosphere and, and hit the Earth. Well, sometimes a soft landing, sometimes not. So this is the basic outline of the contents of the solar system. Now this is putting it in words. Now there's an interesting plot my colleague Scott Gowdy has put together that I'll show you here in a second, which puts this in perspective. Here's a cartoon. This is actually a cartoon that was part of the press release from the International Astronomical Union General Assembly meeting this summer in Prague. It shows the denizens of what we'll call, for lack of a better word, the new solar system. The eight planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Those are the eight in order of distance from the sun. This is obviously not drawn to scale and distance, but the planets are drawn in this picture to their relevant scales. And then there are three dwarf planets, which even in PowerPoint, I have to circle and say, there's a dwarf planet in there, really, trust me. Ceres, which lives in the orbit, in an orbit between Mars and Jupiter, and then Pluto and Eris, which live in orbits in the trans-Neptunian realm, basically out beyond the orbit of Neptune. Now this is a plot, this is a little bit of a technical plot, it's why my colleague Scott Gowdy is a new faculty member here. He actually got his PhD from us a number of years ago and we've hired him back, he's, he's a good guy. Um, he made this plot for, uh, for his job talk last year and it's really nice and I've asked, I asked him to give me a copy. What it plots on the vertical axis is plotting the mass of all the solar system bodies in units of the mass of the Earth. So one here, not surprisingly, is the Earth. And on the x-axis we're plotting the Actually, this, he's, he's labeled it as distance. It really should be semi-major axis of the orbit in astronomical units. And these are both on a logarithmic scale, which means each jump is a factor of 10. So, for example, this goes from a tenth of an astronomical unit out to 100,000 astronomical units, about a little over halfway to the nearest star, and in mass from about 10 to the minus 11 the mass of the Earth, which is pretty darn small, up to... He's drawn the upper end about a million times the mass of the sun, but in reality, the most massive thing other than the sun, well, the sun is actually about a million times the mass of the Earth in round numbers. But the largest planet is Jupiter at about 318 times the mass of the sun up here. Now, what you see by this is that where the stuff in the solar system is by mass and place, this is kind of, you know, contents by mass, the inner planets, the terrestrial planets, are all fairly small. They're the size of the Earth or less. In fact, Mercury is down at a few percent the mass of the Earth. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars is drawn here. 
And then the giant gas planets stand up in their own group in the outer solar system, starting at five astronomical units, out to 30 astronomical units for Neptune, with masses of about 300 to basically 14 and 15 times the mass of the Sun for Uranus and Neptune, respectively. Now contrast that with the dwarf planets. I've given them lowercase letters, appropriately. Ceres, the largest of the asteroids. Pluto and Eris, the two largest of this outer group known as the Kuiper Belt, which is actually a distinct group we'll see here in just a moment. The first thing you notice is there really is no small solar system bodies with semi-major axes, or not very many, in the gap between the asteroid belt and the sun. There are few, but there's not shown here. And there is literally nothing out here. The planets, the asteroids, the comets, all together only occupy one billionth the volume of the solar system. So we really are talking about an awful lot of empty space. And you can see they fall into two, the small bodies fall into two very distinctive groups with very distinctive orbital regimes. They're not just all over the place. The asteroids are very tightly confined, to the, mostly to the main belt of the asteroid belt. He's only plotted the main belt here. And then the Kuiper belt is out here between about 30 and 50 astronomical units with a few objects below Neptune. This is actually a group known as the Centaurs. A lot of these things have special names. We're not going to worry about them too much. And then this outer part here, which have been scattered into the outer solar system called the Scattered Belt. This bright point here is probably a slight over mass estimate. This is an object called Sedna. It's currently the most distant object we know of in the universe, or not in the universe, in the solar system. Out here is the putative location of something called the Oort Cloud, possibly the origin of the long-period comets. And then at the very edge, at about 100,000 astronomical units, is the tidal radius of the solar system. That's the point that at which tides from passing stars would be strong enough to strip any objects away from the gravity of the sun. So the outer edge of the solar system is defined dynamically in terms of the tidal field of the galaxy we reside in with stars passing by. If there was an object out here in the Oort cloud, very close to the tidal radius, passing stars can actually tickle objects out here and cause them to fall into the inner solar system or strip them away from the sun entirely. So tides play a role even in the structure of the solar system. They define the outer limit beyond which an object cannot stably be said to belong to the solar system, but the slight variations in the gravity field just due to the buzzings of stars around us are bigger than the gravitational binding to the sun and it strips the object away. Now, notice that the dwarf planets, Pluto, Ceres, and Eris, really stand out in this group as really the largest of these small body groups or they're extremely small planets. So that's part one of why Pluto, I think, also is not a planet. It really stands out, along with Eris and Ceres, as very distinctive from the terrestrial and Jovian planets. It really stands up. But they make more sense, in some way, as the largest members of either the Kuiper Belt for Pluto and Eris, or, Cer or asteroids for the case of Ceres. And you can see in here a few other spots which are not given the purple dots. Those are candidate dwarf planets. We'll say a little bit more about that here in just a second. So I spent a little bit of time on this plot, but it contains a lot of information giving you an idea of how you can talk about the contents of the solar system in terms of the masses and distances arrangement of the objects. Well, let's now go back to sort of you know, the general facts of things. Let's talk about the basic properties of the planets. The first thing, again, what that plot showed is the planets live in certain locations. The terrestrial planets are confined to the inner solar system. Specifically, they're found between 0.4 and 1.5 astronomical units. And the Jovian planets, the giant gas planets, are in the outer solar system in a range between 5 and 30 astronomical units. 
Now, they all orbit in the same general direction and in nearly the same plane. The largest tilt that you get out of that plane is Mercury, which is about seven degrees away from the ecliptic, but they all stay under 10 degrees from the ecliptic. They all also orbit in a counterclockwise sense. If you use the orbit of the Earth, you say the ecliptic is up with your right hand, point your thumb in the direction of the ecliptic pole and curl your fingers. That's the general counterclockwise sense of rotation using our our notion of up and down for the solar system. So they orbit in the same direction and same sense. In fact, it's the same direction that the sun appears to be rotating when you watch sunspots go around the sun. So the rotation axis of the sun and the general orbital axis of the solar system know something about each other. They're the same, in fact, within a few degrees. Also, all the planets orbit very, very near the ecliptic plane. As I said, they never get more than about seven degrees away. This is important. This is an important clue to how the solar system formed. I'm not going to elaborate on this today, but this is going to form the subject of tomorrow's lecture. This is, in fact, the kickoff point for Tuesday. So here's a plot showing the solar system layout. These are the eight planets. We'll start with the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, between around five astronomical units for Jupiter and 30 astronomical units for Neptune, and then arranged in between. If we power zoom to the inside, and you'll notice this rather small box, the four terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, are all located fairly close to the sun, about, on average, 0.4 astronomical units for Mercury, and about 1.5 astronomical units for Mars, and, of course, one for Earth. So they really are confined to a really tiny spot. There's a very strong distinction in place. Well, while there's a distinction in place in terms of distance from the sun, they really do lie very close to the same plane. The largest circle here on the line on here is the orbit of Neptune viewed edge on. The dotted line crossing this plot is the ecliptic plane, and I've drawn the sun there, not the scale on the inside. And you can see that a few of the planets do, in fact, have their orbits tilting. You can see, for example, um, Neptune here is slightly tilted with respect to the ecliptic. Uranus is very close to the ecliptic, and Saturn here. The rest of them are in there. You just can't see them very well because the lines all blend together. They really do share, within a few degrees, the same plane of inclination. So if you looked at the solar system edge on, it's really flat. Keep this picture in mind here. We're going to need it here in a second. Now, of course, the, the very center of the solar system is the sun. The sun is, sort of giving you a quick preview of a big chunk of Astro 162, is a middle-aged, kind of average-sized star. It's neither very big nor very small. It's kind of right in the middle. It consists of mostly hydrogen and helium. In fact, about 75% hydrogen and about 24% and change helium. Everything else is just in the fraction of a percent left over. It constitutes 99.8% the total mass of the solar system. So it is absolutely the most massive thing in the solar system. And it's also, we think, about 4.6 billion years old. The indications are it is about as old, in fact, a little bit older maybe than the Earth. It formed a little bit more rapidly. We'll say a bit more about that formation process tomorrow. Now, the sun shines because it is hot. It's got a surface temperature of around 6,000 degrees Kelvin, which Wien's Law tells us basically means it shines mostly by visible, ultraviolet, and infrared light. And so the sun is going to be the source of almost all the light, visible light, in the solar system. Most of the rest of the planets are going to shine by reflected light, although we're going to see in the Jovian planets they actually produce a little bit of energy themselves due to gravitational collapse. They actually produce more energy than they receive from the sun. But that's a different tale for a different day. Now, 
the sun is hot, it is kept hot by nuclear fusion in its core. Basically, it gets its power to, to continue to shine for 4.6 billion years from the past and for another 4-5 billion years into the future by taking hydrogen and building it into helium through a process of, of, a, of nuclear fusion. And it can generate enough energy for about 10 billion years, only consuming a small fraction of the hydrogen in its interior to shine at a relatively steady but slowly brightening rate over most of its history. In fact, we think when you add all the stages of the lifetime of the sun together, the sun will shine for about 12 billion years before it will finally burn out as a white dwarf star. So right now we're kind of not quite halfway through, about 4.6 billion years into this process. Long ways to go. At least cosmically speaking, it's not a long time, but it just as far as we're concerned, it might as well be forever. Now, surrounding the sun, moving outwards, are the terrestrial planets. The first planets, objects you encounter are the four large rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. These are called the terrestrial or Earth-like planets. They have rocky surfaces. The largest of these is the Earth. Hey, we're number one, at least among our group of planets. And they're only found in the inner solar system. As I've said before, it's a range between about 0.4 and 1.5 astronomical units. Now, these are rocky planets. All of these have a common structure. They tend to have solid, they well, don't tend to, they have solid surfaces. They're composed mostly of silicates and iron. In fact, things like hydrogen and volatiles, for the most part, are lacking from their surfaces, except insofar as they have surf, those volatiles may have come from the interior. They also have relatively high density. Now, density is a, a word we've, we've thrown around a little bit. We're going to use it a lot more here. Density is basically the weight per unit volume, or the mass per unit volume of an object. So, for example, water has a density of about one gram per cubic centimeter, a kilogram per liter, if you will. Whereas rock, if you go out and pick up your average rock, a typical silicate-bearing rock will typically have a density of around three grams per, per cubic centimeter, three grams per cc, as I'll often write it. That's why rocks sink. If you found a basaltic lava rock or a meteoritic rock, which is very, very rich in iron, the density is going to go up to about 5 grams per cc. Think, if you will, about the difference in density between, say, a block of wood, which has a density less than water, that's why wood floats, a silicate rock like granite or something, which is going to have a density of around, in round numbers, about 3 grams per cc, and a chunk of steel, which has a density almost up around 10 grams per cc, right? Iron cannonball is going to have a density of around 5.5 grams per cc. Compare that to ice. Ice floats. Pure water ice has a density of less than the density of water. It's less than a gram per cc. So we can immediately distinguish by measuring density whether something is made mostly of ices, mostly of silicates, or mostly of iron. Iron high density, ice is lowest density. In between is kind of silicaceous rocks. Of the, of the terrestrial planets, only three, Venus, Earth, and Mars, have atmospheres. And we'll see those atmospheres in some detail as this course winds on. So here's a nice family portrait of the cousins of the terrestrial planets, shown to their proper size scale. The Earth at one Earth mass. Mars is only about 11% the mass of the Earth and somewhat smaller. The near sister of the Earth is Venus at about 82% the mass of the Earth. And Mercury here, shown as a half Mercury, is about a little over 5.5% the mass of the Earth. Now, I've drawn Mer Mercury as a half Mercury not because it fit on the screen and it would fall off otherwise, but because we've only mapped half the planet. And we'll see why that is tomorrow.
The Jovian planets are the next major group of planets. They live in the outer solar system. They live out between, um, well, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. They're the largest of the planets. The smallest of the Jovian planets is 15 times the mass of the Earth. So we go from the terrestrials, where the Earth is the biggest, and the others are within a few percent, except for Mercury, of the mass of the Earth. Jupiter is 318 times the mass of the Earth. It's the biggest planet in the solar system by far. And in fact, if you were to look at the solar system from the outside as an, astro an alien astronomer looking at the sun, you would think that the solar system was the sun, Jupiter, Saturn, and this other junk. So it really is. Most of the mass is in the Jovian, big Jovian planets. They're only found in the outer solar system. About five astronomical units for Jupiter, out to 30 astronomical units for Neptune. Now these are very different than the terrestrial planets. They do not have solid surfaces in the same way that the Earth and all the terrestrials have solid surfaces. They are in fact mostly atmosphere, or their interiors are so dense that even though they have densities consistent with being solid material, it's more like mushy goo than it is mushy ice than it is actually like a gas. Their composition is very different. These are mostly hydrogen and helium, in fact, in composition, they more resemble the sun than anything else in the solar system. They tend, however, not to be hydrogen helium all the way down like the sun, but deep in their interior is a rock or rocky ice core. So they tend to have hard centers, but the gases around them are so dense, you shouldn't think of it as a heavy hydrogen atmosphere sitting on top of a solid silicate rocky icy surface. There's really no distinction between atmosphere and surface like there is on the Earth. On the Earth, the atmosphere is really low density and the ground is pretty high density. So there's this just really sharp contrast between air and a ground. In a Jupiter, giant Jupiter-type planet, there is no such distinction. All you notice is it's getting denser and denser around you but the composition has changed. All of a sudden you say, well, I'm getting crushed by a bunch of hydrogen and helium. And then you go a little deeper and you say, ooh, I guess I'm getting crushed by rock now. But you don't actually feel there's not a sharp boundary between the two. They kind of merge together. That's why we say they don't have a solid surface. They also have fairly low density, consistent with there being mostly gas or gas, ice, and a little bit of rock. The densities are actually less than the density of water, 0.7 for Saturn up to about 1.7 grams per cc for the two outermost, Uranus and Neptune, which is telling us they've got a larger admixture of the solid rocky icy bits than the gases. Here's again a family portrait of the Jovian cousins, and now shown again to their scale, Jupiter at 318 times the mass of the Earth, Saturn at 95 times the mass of the Earth. These two contain most of the mass of the solar system, and then Uranus and Neptune at 15 and 17 times the mass of the Earth, respectively. These two, Uranus and Neptune, have much larger rocky ice cores than Jupiter and Saturn by proportion of their mass, as we're going to see. In fact, some people want to actually say that Uranus and Neptune are prototypes of a slightly different kind of, of gas planet. And we'll say a little bit about that more at the end of the class when we talk about solar systems around other planets where these distinctions may be important. In our own solar system, we'll call these all the gas giants. To give you a conception of scale, here is a scale picture of Saturn, or Saturn, I'm missing. Scale picture of Jupiter and one of its small giant moons, Io. Here is the Earth and Moon to scale. So, for example, there is a large cyclonic storm on the surface of Jupiter called the Great Red Spot. It is approximately the size of the Earth. So these are gigantic worlds. 
But once we get past the major, the big, the big eight planets, there's now a smaller group of planets we now designate, correct, designate formally as dwarf planets. This is a new classification of planets. It was put forward by the International Astronomical Union in August of 2006. To be a dwarf planet, you have to satisfy three criteria. Actually, there are four, but I put two of them together. The first is they orbit around the sun and are not a satellite of something else. Okay, so they can't be orbiting around a larger body that's not the sun. So the moon, for example, is not a dwarf planet because it's orbiting the earth. The second, and this is the important one, is that they are shaped by gravity. As an object gets larger and larger, its internal gravity begins to exceed the rigid body forces that give it shape, and gravity determines its shape. It basically has sufficient mass that it actually shapes itself into a spheroid. Now, we say this state is often referred to as a state of hydrostatic equilibrium, a balance between gravity pulling in and the rigid body forces trying to keep the matter from being pushed together. In practice, this is going to work out to an object whose diameter is greater than about 800 kilometers. Now, it's not an exact line because it depends upon what kind of material is producing the rigid body forces. Ices have very different strength than rock. And so where they achieve this equilibrium shape, the spheroidal shape, is going to be different whether you're made of rock or iron or ice. So the IU basically sensibly stepped back from a definition saying 800 and above. No, didn't do that. What they said was it's going to be a physical definition in terms of spheroidal shape. It's clearly big enough. It's shaped by gravity. If an object gets fairly small, like a rock, if you pick up a rock, a rock is shaped by the crystalline forces in the rock, the rigid body forces. But if you gather enough rock together, eventually the gravity of all the rock pulling on all the other rock overcomes those rigid forces and shapes the whole thing into a sphere. So I've dwelt on that a bit, but that's important. So planets satisfied, like Earth, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all satisfy criteria one and two. They orbit the sun, and they're not satellites of anything. They're shaped by gravity. Their spheroidal shapes are caused by gravity. But the dwarf planet has one thing that the other planets does not. It has not cleared its orbital neighborhood. Now, this is the controversial point about dwarf planets. I think the IAU made a mistake by talking about it clearing its orbital neighborhood. Earlier language in the meeting was, it's the dominant gravitational object in its orbit, or words to that effect. This is this idea of orbital dominance. Jupiter has literally cleared everything around it. Earth has not completely cleared everything around it, but it is the dominant thing. Anything that wanders into the range of the Earth's orbit is going to be dominated by the Earth's gravity. Pluto and the others, they're not the only large thing in their orbit. Ceres actually crosses an orbit with the asteroid Pallas. Pluto is actually in a range where, in fact, its orbit, is going to, as we'll see later, is controlled by Neptune. It's actually in a resonance with Neptune and driven into its orbit by the gravity of Neptune. So Pluto does not determine its own orbital destiny, is a way of putting it. It's not the biggest thing in the zone, and it doesn't control the dynamics. And that's what makes a dwarf planet different from a planet. Is dwarf planets do orbit the sun, they're not the moon of anything, and they do have spheroidal shape due to gravity, but they have not achieved, they're not big enough to be the dominant thing in their orbit. And that's where the distinction comes. Now there are three current defined dwarf planets. Ceres, which is the first of the asteroids that was discovered in the year 1801. It's also the largest of the asteroids. It's a little over 800 kilometers in diameter. 
But it's definitely not. It's definitely orbiting the sun and shaped by gravity, but it shares an orbit with a couple of other, other asteroids. In fact, it exchanges place with the asteroid Pallas every now and then. So it's not gravitationally dominant. Pluto is the largest, was the first trans-Neptunian object. It was discovered in 1930 and immediately declared a planet, largely because the estimates of its size were greatly overestimated. They thought it was as big as the Earth or bigger, and later work actually showed that it's not. And then Eris, which was discovered in the year 2005 by Mike Brown, Chad Trujillo, and David Rabinowitz, is the largest of the trans-Neptunian objects. It's currently larger than Pluto. And in fact, it was the discovery of Eris, originally named 2003 UB313, that actually triggered the whole planet-dwarf-planet debate that came to a head this year. Because now it was senseless to have an object bigger than Pluto not be a planet. It means, okay, kids, we've got to basically sit down and decide, what do we mean by planet anyway? I do not think this argument is over. It's clear that the people who've sent the Pluto mission out, like Alan Stern and company, um, are actually starting a campaign to reinstate Pluto as a planet. Personally, I think those people need to get a grip. I also think they should all get a copy of that plot that shows the masses versus distance in the solar system that really demonstrates that Pluto just doesn't belong among the planets. It's the, I think Pluto, personally, is much more interesting as the largest of the trans-Neptunian objects. And we'll see why that is a little bit later in the class when we talk about these things. It actually makes a lot more sense this way. Here's the dwarf planets in scale. Here's the Earth and the Moon. The Moon is not a dwarf planet because it orbits the Earth. Pluto, and it's got a large moon, Charon. Eris, and its moon, Dysnomia. These moons are important because we can, using their orbit, kind of like the Mongo and spacecraft problem I gave you on the homework last week, we can use it to measure their masses using uh, orbital dynamics. And finally, Ceres, the largest of the asteroids, this beautiful Hubble Space Telescope image um, shown here. None of these worlds have been visited by spacecraft. The Dawn spacecraft is on its way to Ceres many years from now, and the um, Pluto Express, uh, Kuiper Belt Express, New Horizons mission, New Horizons mission is on its way to Pluto for an arrival sometime in the 20-teens, uh, subject for another day. Here's looking down on the solar system, and I've now highlighted just the outer solar system, Ceres, Pluto, and Eris's orbit. The first thing to notice is that they are very eccentric orbits. But when you want to see how different these orbits are, let's turn the solar system on its side. Pluto is tilted by 17 degrees, Ceres is tilted by 15 degrees relative to the ecliptic, and Eris is tilted by 45 degrees, 44 and change, to the ecliptic. These things really don't they share the general sense of orbit, but they're really different. They lie in different orbital planes than the rest of the planets. So it's not just their size. It's also their orbits are very different. Pluto always stood out as the wacky planet. It was really elliptical, really tilted, and didn't make any sense. Furthermore, it's going to be turned out, as we'll see, controlled by the orbit of Neptune. So there's a lot of reasons why Pluto didn't fit. And now that you've got large objects like Eris involved, now we're seeing it fits more with a different class of objects. And that really is what comes down to the argument about Pluto being a planet or not. And that's one of the questions we'll pick up in this class. Well, let's go quickly through the rest of the material in the solar system. You can be large enough to be spherical, but if you're orbiting another planet, you are not a dwarf planet, you are a moon. So a moon is any natural satellite orbiting a planet or even orbiting a dwarf planet, for example. Pluto and Eris both have moons. 
So they qualify as dwarf as moons of dwarf planets, even though they themselves, at least certainly the case of Charon, is big enough to be spherical. And if it was all by itself around the sun, it would probably almost certainly become a dwarf planet. There are a number of giant moons throughout the solar system. The first, of course, is the moon. Yeah, I know, this is kind of a confusing, confusing language. We call any natural satellite of an object a moon. And we call, of course, our moon, the moon, with a capital M. So, yeah, I just get used to it. <laughs> Jupiter has four major giant moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. These are, in fact, the four, same four moons that Galileo discovered with his telescope in 1610. Saturn and Neptune each have a giant moon each. Saturn has the giant moon Titan, which has an atmosphere and methane weather, as we'll see. And Neptune has Triton, which actually looks like it's a captured body like Pluto and Eris. It's one of these icy outer worlds of the solar system, but trapped in orbit around Neptune. And in fact, as we'll see when we talk about Neptune in a few weeks, there's evidence it was in fact captured by the gravity of Neptune. So a case where gravity capture can work. And then there's just a whole lot of smaller moons, and we're going to meet them at various times. Little rocky things that look like captured asteroids, and slightly bigger things, but these are the big guys. These are the, the biggest moons in the solar system, and we'll meet them because they have some very interesting properties all their own. Oops. Here's, uh, and that last little bit that just flashed by was that only Venus and Mercury do not have moons. Here is a little portrait of the giant moons of the solar system. Ganymede, Titan, Callisto, Io, the moon. Notice there's only number five in order, Europa and Triton. So the biggest moon in the solar system is Ganymede. The smallest of the giant moons is 2,700 kilometers. And each of these is, in turn, themselves bigger than even Pluto or Eris as dwarf planets. So if these were out by themselves, not locked up to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, or the Earth, they would be dwarf planets in their own right by those definitions. But because they are clearly moons, they are, well, just that, moons. They're, or they're, they're natural satellites of those planets. Moving further out in the solar system, going beyond the last of the planets at 30 astronomical units in the orbit of Neptune, we come into a realm of objects which were only discovered really in 1992. Technically, yeah, Pluto is the first of these. It was discovered in 1930, but the second of these was only discovered in 1992. Very, very distant, very, very hard to see because they're really, really faint, right? If you're 30 astronomical units away from the sun, Sunlight is 30 squared, or 900 times fainter than it is on Earth. So it's really hard to see these guys by reflected sunlight. If we go out past 30 astronomical units, we find the composition changes dramatically. We no longer find gas giants, we find icy objects. The densities range between about 1.2 and 2 grams per cc, which is telling us these are dense ice balls with an admixture of some rock inside them to make their average density go up a little bit. But these are mostly icy bodies, and they really do live, for the most part, beyond the orbit of Neptune. Some examples of these that we're going to meet is a broad region known as the Kuiper Belt. We already saw it on that one plot. I'll show a picture here in just a second. Charon, Pluto's very large moon, is another example of these icy bodies. In fact, one of the interesting surprises of the last few years is the large, and even some of the smaller, Kuiper Belt objects come in pairs, at least. Pluto actually has three moons, a big moon, Charon, and two smaller moons. And then there's some very, very distant objects, Sedna and Quar, which are very, very large, distant icy bodies, which are actually, they're candidate dwarf planets, but they're really big, and they're way the heck out there. They're out at 50, 60 or more astronomical units.
So here's this little, little rogues gallery of these known trans-Neptunian objects, of course, the dwarf planets we've just seen, Eris and Pluto, followed by some objects which have not yet been given formal names, 2005 FY9 and 2003 EL61. 2003 EL61 actually has two moons, and it's kind of football-shaped, more like a rugby football than a football football, American football for the podcast listeners. Um, tumbling end over end here. Sedna, Orcus, Qua, and Varuna are also these objects. In fact, nearly all of these are also candidates for becoming dwarf planets. The question is whether something like that is really shaped by equilibrium. And we don't have good sizes for a lot of these yet because they're so far away. We have to use indirect methods to estimate their diameters, really learn if they're, if they're shaped by gravity or not. The Kuiper Belt really is a broad belt as shown in this cartoon. All of these objects come in some contact due to their elliptical orbit, with the orbit of Neptune. And in fact, the dynamics of Neptune really control a lot of these objects in here. And so that's why they're referred to as the Kuiper Belt. They were predicted by a man named Gerard Kuiper, and also a man named Edgeworth. Sometimes you'll hear it called the Edgeworth-Kuiper Belt or the Kuiper-Edgeworth Belt, depending upon whether you're talking to an American or Brit. Um, but this is a broad belt between about 30 and 50 astronomical units, and there are thousands of objects out here known but only about 1% the mass of the Earth, if you added up all the little ice balls. Here's a plot of all the currently known members of the Kuiper Belt. This is the orbit of Neptune on the outside, and what you're seeing down here are just some inner solar system bodies around the orbits of Saturn and Jupiter, because they threw some asteroids in this as well. But pay attention to the red dots and the white dots. Those are the main regions of the Kuiper Belt that are currently known, and this is their actual positions, not their orbital semi-major axes. And then finally, we get down to the junk, the leftover bits, the leftover from the assembly of the solar system. The largest of these in the rocky version are known as the asteroids. They're made mostly of rock and metal, and they have densities between 2 and 3 grams per cc. We have dynamical masses for a few of them, either from spacecraft flybys measuring their gravity, and there's even a couple binary asteroids. You know, asteroids have moons, too. Um, they range in size from a few hundred kilometers up to you know, big rocks, big boulder-sized things. And the largest of these actually get into the dwarf planet zone. The largest three or four, well, Ceres, the largest of these is a dwarf planet. And at least two of the large, other large ones, Pallas and Vesta, are considered to be candidates as dwarf planets because they kind of stand up in their size. Yeah, there's a question in the back there. Well, it was originally classified as an asteroid. And so what the, the way that I think the definition is going to be is asteroid is going to be rocky, small solar system body. And then the largest of them, if they're shown to actually have to be shaped by gravity, Ceres certainly, maybe Pallas and Vesta, the other two, will eventually get classified as dwarf planets and will stop calling them asteroids, although they have kind of dual citizenship, kind of more of a traditional sense. That's a good question. Yeah, it's, yeah, the nomenclature is going to get kind of funny here because there's dwarf planet and other stuff, and they overlap at the high end. And that's where things are ain't going to be fun for a while until we get used to it. Meteoroids are when I get smaller than the boulder range down to bits of rock and metal. They range from grains of sand up to boulder size. And there is no firm dividing line between asteroid and meteoroid, but we'll artificially draw it at the boulder. And finally, we end up with the comets. These are the icy versions of leftover debris. They're composites of rock and ice, often called dirty snowballs. And when they come along elliptical orbits down near the sun, the sunlight begins to evaporate some of those ices. The ices flash into gas, sublimate, 
forming these gigantic tails drawn off behind them, as well as tails of dust being blown back by the solar wind and solar radiation. So they get to be very spectacular when they pass near the sun, but they spend most of their lives far away from the sun as frozen little ice balls. So here's a current plot of the current asteroids. There, it looks like it's paved wall-to-wall -wall with asteroids in the green main belt. This is the orbit of Mars here, the orbit of Jupiter bracketing on the outside. There's a group of asteroids. Again, their plots, the points here grossly exaggerate their size. These are the Earth-crossing and Mars-crossing asteroids that we'll discuss in some detail later. And of course, in green here is the main belt. Asteroids are kind of random potato-shaped rocky bits. Here's three of them that have been imaged with passing spacecraft. Um, they've got numbers here, which is the order of discovery, and then a name is attached to them. And we'll say something about how those names are assigned later in the class. Meteors are smaller chunks of rock that occasionally burn up in the atmosphere and occasionally survive to hit the ground. Some are stony, some are pure iron. So they're basically bits and pieces broken off of asteroids. And of course, comets. The comet nucleus itself is buried deep inside here, but we see these million kilometer tails come blowing off these things. But deep inside is basically a dirty, pitted, rocky snowball, like Comet Halley's nucleus or Comet P. Vilt over here, which was photographed with the Stardust mission a couple of years ago. So here's an outline of where we're going. We're going to explore the solar system from the inside out. We're going to begin with the terrestrial planets. Well, actually, we're going to begin tomorrow by discussing the origin of the solar system to set the stage scientifically for what kinds of questions we want to ask of the solar system. I don't want to just be Pareto facts. I really want there to be a theme. And so the theme is, how can we see the origin of the solar system in the properties of the planets? We'll then talk about the terrestrial planets and the Jovian planets in order and compare their properties. We'll look at the giant moon systems and some of the interesting worlds that reside as moons around Jupiter and Saturn. We'll look at the trans-Neptunian realm. We'll see what these icy outer bodies are, these leftover icy planetesimals from the formation of the solar system, the asteroids and meteorites, and end this section with a discussion of comets and their debris. This will then set the stage for asking, what are solar systems like around other stars, which will be the subject we'll end the class with. So I'll see you all tomorrow.